All right, if you have a Bible, open to Psalm 131. This is page 519 in your Red Pew Bible. You also should have gotten a little card when you came in this morning. So if you want to just look at that, you can look at that. Um, and I'll say more about that here in a few moments. But this is a very short psalm, just three verses. And uh, a, a lot here that I think speaks to, uh, speaks to us today. So a song of a sense, this one is credited to David. And it begins like this. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. When I was a kid, one of the, the punishments that I received for misbehaving was to be sent to my room. Anybody else get sent to their room when you were goofing off as a kid? Yeah, a few of us uh, had to experience that. Now, as an introvert, not necessarily the worst form of punishment that I could have received, but getting sent to your room always meant that you were missing out on something, right? Missing out on, on dessert, on watching your favorite show, or just missing out on the whatever general activity was happening with, within the home. Generational researcher and psychologist Gene Twang writes that today's teens don't necessarily see this as punishment the way that maybe those of us who are older uh, would have experienced it. Because in their rooms, teens today have access to the entire world. All their friends, all, all the fun things that they could uh, want to know about uh, right there in the palm of their hand, right? She wrote an article. It was published, I think, in The Atlantic. It has a very uh, sensational headline called Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? Obviously meant to generate some clicks, and we all know that smartphones can be an easy target, right, when we're trying to identify the one thing that's wrong with our world. But that, that aside, her article, I think, has some pretty sobering things to say. So I just wanted to read a couple bits of this as we get started here. So she writes, more comfortable in their bedrooms than in a car or at a party. Today's teens are physically safer than teens have ever been. Psychologically, however, they are more vulnerable than millennials were. Rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed since 2011. It's not an exaggeration to describe iGen, and iGen is what she calls this generation of teens. iGen is being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. No single factor ever defines a generation, but the twin rise of the smartphone and social media has caused an earthquake of a magnitude we've not seen in a very long time, if ever. There is compelling evidence that the devices we've placed in young people's hands are having profound effects on their lives and making them seriously unhappy. And she goes through a lot of that evidence in this article. Now again, smartphones and social media can be an easy target, especially for a preacher. But they do, I think, help us numb and escape and, frankly, sin more efficiently and effectively than previous technologies. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. That being said, that being true, the underlying issue, what's really going on underneath all of that, is a struggle that we have had since the fall, since Genesis chapter 3. This is just a new manifestation of the same 
problem. Henry Nouwen, who uh, uh, wrote this quote over 40 years ago, I think very prophetically speaks to the issue. As long as we are trying to run away from our loneliness, we are constantly looking for distractions. And I don't know if there's a better distraction than a smartphone, right? We're constantly looking for distractions with the inexhaustible need to be entertained and kept busy. We become the passive victims of a world asking for our idolizing attention. Our lives become a spastic and often destructive sequence of actions and reactions pulling us away from our inner selves. One of the most difficult things for human beings of any generation, whatever the technology may have been, is this practice of being alone with ourselves. The spiritual discipline of solitude. And our inability to be alone with ourselves is a deeply spiritual problem. It's a reflection, I think, of a deep mistrust of God. So our psalm speaks to this today. Look at verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. This very short psalm opens with a triple negative, (laughs) which has, I think, a very unsettling uh, um, effect on us, right? This, This repeating of what we are not, not how we're typically taught to present ourselves. We're taught to present ourselves in the positive. This is who I am and what I do and what I'm for. This is what I'm all about. Now, what's interesting about this, there's a rich tradition in Christianity called apophatic theology. Apophatic theology speaks of God in the negative. Defining God by who he is not. A classic apophatic text is actually the children's book, Are You My Mother? (laughs) Some of you know this book. Maybe you've had to read it many, 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 many times. Here's a, quick, uh, here's a quick synopsis of the plot if you're not familiar with the book. So this baby bird is born, hatches out of the egg into an empty nest. His mom has gone off to look for a worm or some food for him to eat once he, he hatches. So he's, a, he's an ambitious little guy and he's like, ah, oh, where's my mom? So he decides to go on a journey to find his mother, and on this journey, he meets a kitten, a dog, a cow, a plane, all kinds of characters, even this big thing called a snort, which is like the comedic heart of the book when you're reading it to a three-year-old. It's good for a laugh every time. Now, at the end of the book, he is finally united with his mom, and when they're united, she asks him the question, do you know who I am? And he answers by saying, yes. You are not a kitten or a dog or a cow or a plane or a snort. You are a bird and you are my mother. Classic apophatic theology. This gives you a sense. My kids are so warped, right? Like who, who uses P.D. Eastman to illustrate theological truth to your children? <laughs> but again, this is a, a classic apophatic approach, defining the essence of something by naming what it is not. And what David does here in in this psalm is he uses this approach to speak to the deepest parts of his being because you can't just say, I'm super humble. Like as soon as you say that, you kind of admit that you're actually not that humble, right? (laughs) So he uses this technique 
to say, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not have an overinflated sense of self-importance. It kind of comes at it in the opposite direction. Now, this opening verse is also, I think, a little bit unsettling because our culture constantly invites us into a life of unfettered ambition. Do whatever you want. Go after whatever you want. Be great. Be awesome. Do it all. Have it all. These are the kinds of messages we're bombarded with all the time. And we do want our hearts to be lifted. We want an exciting life. We want to be where the action is. And we have this sense that if we are not where the action is, that somehow we're, we're missing out, we're doing life wrong. But David, King David, says, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. And it is interesting that it is David who writes these words because, again, this is a, a man who uh, achieved some significant things in his life. He went from shepherd to king. That's a big jump in tax bracket. As king, he brought stability to the young kingdom of Israel. He's only the second king, and the first king created a situation where things were, were fragmenting and falling apart, and there was this question, will this experiment, the kingdom of Israel, even work? And David comes and unites the kingdom, and he expands the borders, and he solidifies the, the identity of the kingdom. And in the midst of all that, he even has this pretty audacious dream to build a temple, to build a, a place of worship where people could come and gather and worship the Lord. So a life of tremendous accomplishment. But what's interesting, David is also extremely patient. He was anointed king as a relatively young boy. You can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He doesn't actually take the throne until 2 Samuel chapter 5. And in between all of that, a lot of different things happen. David fights a giant. He gets married. He flees for his life. He, he develops a, a community of people around him, including his best friend Jonathan. He, he fights with these men and wins many battles. And then in the midst of all of that, he has two opportunities, two sort of Silver platter moments where he can take over the kingdom. Or he could just uh, kind of wipe out the current king and, and he'd be all set. Both times he lets the opportunity go by. Now if you apply some of our cultural ideals to David's situation, we would applaud him for being more assertive in those moments. Get yours, you know, do you, Dave. Right, we say things like this, and, and they're sort of like jokey, like YOLO, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like, it, it's supposed to be funny, but uh, underneath that is, again, this, this like, of course you should do that. Of course you're the most important person. Now, as we wrestle with life's big questions, you know, these, these questions about um, what jobs to take and where to live and, and who to marry and when to retire and how to pay for college, all these big life questions, wouldn't you love the assurance that David lived most of his life with? He knew he was going to be king. Many of us, you know, we maybe have a, a faint idea of where our life is headed, but we don't have that sort of assurance. 
But David did. David knew where he was going to end up. And yet, even with that, he was so patient on God's timing. David's story, which is, uh, you know, illustrates many truths, also, I think, shows us the difference between ambition and aspiration. Aspiration is the God-given drive to create, to contribute something with our lives. This is, again, ingrained in us as being created in the image of God. Ambition, though, is an unchecked aspiration. It's fueled by pride, and it's oftentimes born out of a fear that our life might not matter if we aren't accomplishing something all the time. Aspirations are God-driven and God-fueled and bring God glory. Ambition is self-driven and self-sustained and brings glory to us, to ourselves. Aspiration comes from rightly understanding who we are, God's children, created in his image, invited, called to participate in his mission of restoration. Ambition, though, comes from wrongly placing ourselves at the center of the action. Now, David is not, in this first verse of our psalm, downplaying his aspirations. He's not neglecting or negating the call that God had placed on his life, but he is rightly placing himself in submission to the God who truly is at the center of the action. Now he goes on to say in verse 2, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. I don't know about you, but those first couple of words in this verse, when I hear them, there's this immediate reaction of like, oh, I want that. Calm and quieted soul. Far too often what's going on in, inside here is the opposite of calm and quiet. And so those words, they sound so inviting, so appealing. Now the picture that David uses here to sort of bring this to life is the picture of a weaned child. Now this is sort of a strange image maybe for some of us. But what David is doing here is using a natural process to describe a spiritual truth. Those of you who have been through the newborn phase understand that when they're hungry, they're the opposite of calm and quiet. And in many ways, this is a good thing because that's how they let you know that they're hungry and that they need something. It's uh, appropriate to that stage of development. But as children grow and mature, they hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> become less and less like a fussy baby. As we grow in maturity, we grow in trust. We trust that our parents are taking care of us, that they're going to get us that next meal that our needs are going to be taken care of. And it's the same in our spiritual life. The longer we journey with God, the deeper our trust becomes and the more we're able to say with confidence, I have a calm and quieted soul. Now we need more calm and quiet souls in our worlds, in our churches. There is a lot of noise a lot of noise, very easy to be noisy. And so common, quiet souls can, can feel rare. They can be hard to find. But when you are in the presence of someone who has calmed and quieted their souls, it's so refreshing, right? 
I see a lot of people seeking this out, seeking someone, a, a calm and quiet soul that they can uh, turn to for help, for uh, mentorship or discipleship, some of the words that we throw around in church. And on the surface of that, that's a great move. There's a lot of wisdom in looking for those kinds of people who can help us along on our journey. But what I have seen is that there's some energy underneath that that comes from the reality that our souls are not calm and quiet and we just want like somebody to wave a magic wand over us and make it all go away. And we just want someone to fix it for us. Part of the issue here is that we lack a larger vision for our lives, a vision that understands that the the healthy, normal trajectory of a disciple of Jesus is to become the kind of person who has a calm and quiet soul so that you can be a help, you can be a blessing, you can love and serve people freely. So we want the help, but then we don't want to do the hard work of, of taking the turn to being able to sustain, sustain ourselves so that we can serve someone else. Let me say it this way. I... I want to take care of my kids. That's like an important thing, being a parent, right? And of course, I want them to learn something from me and I want them to trust me. But the goal, the whole goal of this thing is for them to get to the point where they can take care of themselves. And not just that. That's important. That's step one. But step two is to get to a place where they can then take care of someone else. Whether that be their future spouse or family or the people that they work with or live with or whatever. To get to the point where they are taking care, not just of themselves, but of someone else. A couple of, uh, this is spoken to in a couple of places in the New Testament. So in 1 Corinthians we read this. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. A fairly ominous statement. In another letter, in, in Hebrews, we read, You have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, and that's a key phrase, you need someone to teach you again. The basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Again, the key phrase here is able to teach. Now sometimes we hear teaching, especially in a church context, and we think, oh man, I have to get up in front of people and like preach a sermon or, or have something to say. No. That's only one small aspect of teaching. Teaching simply means helping someone else in this maturation process. So, in order for us to move forward as disciples, on this journey of discipleship, we have to move from milk to meat. From being fed to feeding ourselves, and then don't stop there. From feeding ourselves to feeding others. One more analogy. This, I saw the new Star Wars trailer this week, so I'm thinking about this. Okay? We all want Yoda, right? Everybody wants a Yoda, someone who's going to help them on their, on their journey. And again, that is a good thing. But the goal is not just to find Yoda. The goal is to become Yoda for someone else. Are you with me? 
We'll never be able to say that we have calm and quiet souls until our lives become oriented around something bigger than ourselves. And that's where this psalm ends. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. If you were here last Sunday, we looked at Psalm 130, and this should sound familiar. This language of verse 3 should sound very familiar. These two psalms pair together around this theme of hope. Now, to hope in the Lord, by definition, pulls us outside of ourselves, right? Orients us towards something bigger than who we are. When we hope in the Lord, we give up control of our lives, we recognize that we can't do everything. We can't be everywhere. We can't fix all the problems. And it's this recognition of our limits that is extremely important to cultivating a calmed and quiet soul. Far, far too often, I think especially here in the Bay Area, this is a, this is a big temptation. We build our lives with no margin and no sense of limits. And the root of that is misplaced hope. It's hope placed in ourselves and it's a reflection of our pride. We can do it all. A reflection of our pride and our lack of humility. Now, I think a real simple definition of humility is simply this, hoping and trusting in God. Hoping and trusting in God. Again, Ties us back to Psalm 130. Last week we saw this. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. That rich Hebrew word, hesed. And with him is plentiful redemption. Not just a little bit, not just enough. Plentiful redemption. David, we've seen, is a good example for us in so many ways. But David as we do, failed over and over and over again. And so Psalm 130 and 131 point us to the the better David, to Jesus. Now Jesus certainly had aspirations. He certainly accomplished many things. He built a team, started a movement, confronted the, the authority and power of his day and overcame death and sin Pretty good life accomplishment list there. (laughs) But Jesus was also incredibly humble. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's that death, it's that cross that demonstrates so clearly the plentiful redemption, the steadfast love of the Lord that we can ground our hope in. It is the cross that gives us hope. It is the cross that brings us peace because it's not on us. It's not on us to save ourselves, to justify ourselves, to make everything wrong right. He did it for us. And so we can live with peace, this healthy tension between humility and aspiration because of the cross. Let the peace that comes from Christ 
rule in your hearts. Now back to Henry Nouwen. The end of that quote is this. The movement from loneliness to solitude should lead to a gradual conversion from an anxious reaction to a loving response. Loneliness leads to quick, often spastic reactions which make us prisoners of our constantly changing world, but in solitude of heart, we can pay careful attention to the world and search for an honest, loving response. So, how do we move from loneliness and anxiety and pride towards solitude and peace and humility? Always begins with responding to the gospel. The good news that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He gave it up. Submitted his life to death, even death on a cross, that we might have relationship with him, life with God, and the forgiveness of our sins. All begins there. And so we, re- we revisit this truth again and again. Every Sunday when we gather, we, we see it in Scripture. We, we live it out in taking communion, these reminders of what Jesus has done for us. It begins by being rooted and grounded in the truth of the gospel. Now, a couple of, of practical things that I do want to walk us through here. A lot of these have to do with how we use our time. I can probably tell if you have a quiet and calm soul in about 10 seconds of looking at your schedule. And not because I'm like some sort of wise sage, it's just obvious. <laughs> if you are not taking time off, if you are working crazy hours, if you're spending little to no time alone, if you are not recreating, if you're always adding another event, always saying yes, always going to another gathering, another activity, even another Bible study, you're probably more fussy baby than calm soul. So three things that I would say, these are not the end all be all, but just a couple of of ideas here. First, Practice the spiritual discipline of saying no. Eliminate something from your calendar each week. The world will go on if you don't go to that party or that event or whatever the thing is. It'll be okay. Second, set apart a true Sabbath. Now this is not something that I or or, or Regen is legalistic about in any way. You can make this uh, however you want to serve your Uh, to serve your needs best. For some of us, we do need a full day where we're just by ourselves. Others, we need the time to be able to reconnect with our family, our spouse, our kids, do some relational time. Others of us, we just need to not look at our phone. Turn it off, don't open the laptop, fast from the news and social media for a time. Whatever, however you do it, however you organize it, set aside some time where you can, you can have the space to, to do some inventory. What's going on in my heart? What's going on in my soul? And, and then to talk to Jesus about it. And again, a Sabbath is a very important reminder that the world will continue to turn without you pushing it. Now the third thing here, I want to introduce you to the chair. Uh, this chair has been with me for 30 years. I don't know if you can tell or not. 
But this is where you can find me just about every single morning from 6 to 6.30-ish. I get up in the morning. I'm by myself. I got a cup of coffee. I read some scripture. I, I say a few short prayers, have a little conversation with Jesus. Just this 30 minutes to sort of ground and center myself before the day begins. It's not the most glamorous time. You know, the clouds don't open and there's no angels speaking to me. But it is this space to, again, be calm and quiet before God and before the rest of the day starts, before I look at my phone, before I open my laptop, before the kids are up. And, and I mean, once that happens, it's like, it's crazy time for the rest of the morning. I cannot tell you how important this practice has been for my soul and for my marriage and, and being a dad and doing ministry. All these things, I think, are served by this time in the morning. Now, don't have to do it the way that I do it, but I wanted that visual in your mind, chair time, for, for a couple of reasons. One, you need to make this intentional. You need to put it in your calendar. Here's a picture of my calendar, okay? At the top in red, every day I write chair, and it's not because I'm going to forget. <laughs> it's just part of the practice, part of the discipline of doing this, making this a rhythm every single day. So make it intentional, make it regular, and set apart. Find that spot. It doesn't have to be an old, nasty chair in your living room. <laughs> it can be somewhere else, in your backyard, uh, you know, the park bench across the street, whatever it might be, find that place and go to the same place over and over again. And then finally, make it a significant chunk of time. For me, it's about 30 minutes. I think that's kind of the minimum. It doesn't have to be hours and hours, but just some significant chunk of time where you are able to be quiet long enough to calm and quiet your soul and to hear and speak with Jesus. Now, one last thing. We gave you those cards, uh, and if you didn't get one, there, there should be some out in the lobby. Those, uh, those cards of Psalm 131. Our hope is that they're helpful to you in this process in some way, and you will notice that they are approximately the size of your phone. So one challenge would be to simply, at the end of each day, put that on top of your phone, and when you get up in the morning, you're looking at Psalm 131 instead of the red buttons that are yelling at you. A reminder to begin your day in your chair, whatever that, whatever that place is for you. Again, you can use it however you want. We just hope it's helpful to you in some way in, in cultivating these practices. Because here's the thing, once again, our world needs deep people with quiet souls who can lovingly and humbly point other people towards the hope that they have in Jesus. We need that more than ever right now. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we confess that way too often our souls are the opposite of calm and quiet. God, we also confess that we have, we have looked to uh, mentors or people, good people, but uh, we haven't taken that step towards being able to, um, to grow up a little bit and to take care of ourselves, to... Uh, to take the meat that you are offering us. 
God, we want to be a community of disciples who are able to have the space in our lives to love and serve other people, to uh, wisely respond to the needs that we see in our families, in our neighborhoods, within our community here at Regen, within our community here in Oakland. And so, God, I pray that we would uh, take whatever step we need to take this morning to begin putting these things into practice, creating the space that we need to be with you and to hear from you so that we are serving out of a deep connection with Jesus and not out of our, our own strength or accomplishments or skills, but out of a deep connection with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.